From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There was a longing in Paula Stone Williams starting in childhood. The Colorado pastor calls it an identity longing. For me, I felt like a boy. I just wasn't happy about that. I knew I was supposed to have been born a girl. And that was a feeling I had as early as three or four years of age. But it took her till age 60 to transition. Her work and family life were upended. I remember when I first told my son what my name was going to be, Paula. He was pretty upset about the whole thing. And I said, Jonathan, it's just an A. And he said, it's not a blanking A. It's a fundamental change in who you are. And he understood that better than I did at the time. Williams has written, as a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. I'm Leanne Claussen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Our guest today has had a truth to share since she was little, but it wasn't until age 60 that she was able to fully embrace it. Reverend Paula Stone Williams of Lyons is transgender, Sharing that truth cost her her job. Well, jobs, plural. The evangelical Christian circles that she dedicated a lifetime to rejected her. The transition upended her family life as well, her marriage, the relationship with her children. But it has also opened William's heart and her eyes to the privileges she enjoyed as a man that are not afforded to her as a woman. And that is the subject of her most popular TED Talks. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way that a woman can understand the full import of that because being a female is all she's ever known. She might have an inkling that she's working twice as hard for half as much, but she has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. And I thought I was one of the good guys. Sensitive to women. Egalitarian. Williams shares her journey in a new book, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. Coloradans read the book with us for Turn the Page. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. And Paula Stone Williams, co-pastor of Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, Welcome back to Colorado Matters. Oh, it's so good to be here, Ryan. You introduced me uh, with this book to a new concept, identity longing. You experienced this starting in childhood. What is identity longing? 
You know, some transgender people will say that they always knew that they were, in fact, the gender they now identify as. In my case, it wasn't that way, which is, I think, just one example, that when you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. For me, I felt like a boy. I just wasn't happy about that. I knew I was supposed to have been born a girl. And that was a feeling I had as early as three or four years of age that remained very consistent throughout my life until I transitioned. And so to long for a different identity, that is what you experienced. That is a deep, deep longing from the deepest part of oneself to realize that something simply isn't right about the way you are presented to the world and knowing exactly what it is that's wrong. And I knew what was wrong. What was wrong? I was expecting, and I think this even was white male entitlement in a little boy, but I was expecting a gender fairy to show up. She would have this cerulean blue dress, and she would say, okay, the time has come. What are you going to be? And of course, I would choose what I knew myself to be, a girl. And she didn't come. I started kindergarten, and she had not yet arrived. And finally, it occurred to me, wait a minute, I don't think I get to choose this. And I did not hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. I'd like you to tell us just briefly about the subsection of evangelical Christianity that you grew up in. It's known as the Stone Campbell Movement. I confess I hadn't heard of it until I read your book. What is it? It's a group of about 7,000 churches around the nation, been around in the country since the early 1800s. Two leaders, Alexander Campbell and Barton Warren Stone. Stone was, in fact, my great-great-great-grandfather. So my roots are extremely deep in that denomination. And I bet the expectations were, too. Oh, yeah. You think? Yeah, it's pretty bad. And tell us about its beliefs, its worldview. It would be the same perspective as most other evangelical denominations in this view that mankind is broken and that mankind needs to be reconciled to God and that God, by God's nature, cannot accept us as we are, that God actually must reject us unless someone is able to pay a punishment for the sin that we have committed. And the sin is basically just being human, honestly. Original sin. It's original sin. And so Jesus is then, in that particular understanding, it's called the substitutionary atonement. He was the substitution for our punishment. He's the one who stands up in the courtroom and says, it's fine that you convicted her, but I will accept her punishment. And so you have to be born again, which is to come in contact with that acceptance of Jesus dying on your behalf. If it sounds complicated, it's because it is. You were fired from numerous jobs for being trans. Explain how that's possible, like like legally speaking. In all 50 states of the United States, you cannot be fired for being transgender. But in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Good to know. Just did an event today for the White House where we were talking about trying to get the Equality Act passed. But even the Equality Act, which will give LGBTQ plus people the same rights as everyone else, it's an extension of the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, even the Equality Act will allow for religious exemptions in all cases. So every one of my employers was a religious employer, and they could fire me at will. Should they have had that right? 
If you ask anyone in Canada or Western Europe, they would say no. But in the United States, that's a pretty sacrosanct area. I, I don't know that I see a, a very quick change in that here in the U.S. I wish we would, but I don't think it's going to happen. The idea obviously being that you don't want to force a belief upon a religious institution that is anathema to their faith. Is that your understanding of what the law is right now? Absolutely. It's the First Amendment that we would not establish a religion or prohibit the free exercise of that religion. And it's the prohibiting the free exercise of that religion that is used in this case. And I think we know at this point we have a Supreme Court that would uphold that. You have now lived in this country as both male and female. And the stark differences in how you're treated are the subject of this new book and of your widely viewed TED Talks. The differences for men and women in corporate circles, when it comes to clothing, even travel. I'd love to have you read an excerpt that sheds light on family life, a reflection on your decades-long marriage to a woman named Kathy. You have three kids together, and you are no longer together, you and Kathy. Men think they are doing an equal amount of parenting, but most of the time, they're not. Since transitioning, I cannot count the number of times I've said to Kathy, I am so sorry, I just never understood. When I was a man, I certainly did not realize how many more hours a week a woman works than a man. I get it now. Women have two full-time jobs, one at work and one at home. Men have a full-time job at work and a part-time job at home. They just think the job at home is full-time. It's the mothers who are truly working two full-time jobs. There are so many ways in which a man does not understand the world in which a woman lives. I now realize why it takes so long for a woman to get ready to leave the house. First, she's the one who has to get the kids ready. She picks out their clothes and has to say, No, you are not wearing a bathing suit and tights. It's December. Then, with the child thrashing about on the floor... It's mom who has to argue with the intransigent child while the father impatiently rattles his keys. After that's happened for each of the three children, the mother can finally get herself ready to go. I still do not have to worry about getting children ready, and grandchildren, yeah, they're just enough out of their element to avoid scenes of thrashing about in bathing suits and tights. But as a woman, it is plenty time-consuming just getting myself ready. You note how much you spend on haircuts now, ten times the amount. Literally. It is not lost on me that I, a man, and you, someone who used to present as male, are discussing what women have been voicing for millennia. Are we man and transplaining? Oh, I think that's very definitely possible, because I know I come from the borderlands between genders. I live in that liminal space. I have not had a cisgender experience. I don't live long enough to lose my, my male privilege. I mean, I had six decades of that male privilege. So I am always very, very cognizant of that. It's why often when I speak, one of the first things I say is, I know my experience as a transgender experience. Did you write this book then? For men to better understand that the pleas of women are to be listened to and valued, 
Did you write this for evangelical circles who rejected you? Who did you picture when you wrote this? I actually pictured human beings, and I don't say that facetiously. I feel like the hero's journey is coming to every culture, every age, every language, every ethnicity group. A, a normal, ordinary citizen is called onto an extraordinary journey under the road of trials. And initially, he or she rejects the call under the road of trials because, hey, it's the road of trials. <laughs> it's hard. But now you know you've been called, and you're miserable because you know you've been called. And so a spiritual guide comes into your life, a Yoda, that gives you the courage to answer that call. And sure enough, you find yourself on the road of trials, and then it gets worse. You find yourself in a deep, dark cave where the true way is wholly lost. But, well, then you realize lost is a place, too. And it's all right to be in that place called lost. You know, there's stuff you learn in the place called lost. You're not going to learn any other way. I love this line, lost is a place, too. Yeah. There are times I've spent days, weeks... I think there are times I've spent years there. I think from the time I experienced the call to transition to the time I actually decided to transition, I was in that place called lost. And I discovered that lost is a place to... I make no apologies because it takes us a long time, I think, to finally say yes to the call under the hero's journey. Throughout the book, it's interesting that you use your previous name, Paul, and we spoke before the broadcast about my use of that name. It's something you're comfortable with. You write, call me Paul, and if it's done with respect, I will still answer. Uh, of course, Paula, some people who are transgender refer to that as a dead name or dead naming them. And it can be injurious when they hear that name invoked. That is not your experience with the name Paul, huh? No, I think my bigger problem and bigger issue has been integrating the two halves of my life. I don't have any pictures of Paul in the house. And there's a real sense, Intentionally. Intentionally. There's a real sense of discontinuity between that life and my current life. And so I look for those touchstones that can put me in touch with Paul. I need them. I remember when I first told my son what my name was going to be, Paula. He was pretty upset about the whole thing. And I said, Jonathan, it's just an A. Hmm. And he said, it's not a blanking A. It's a fundamental change in who you are. And he understood that better than I did at the time. A few lines in the book gave me real pause. I'm going to read them. I cannot speak for other transgender individuals, but I wish there had been another pathway for me. I wish I could have gotten through life without transitioning. You go on to write, from my perspective, the best solutions would be to discover what makes a person transgender and correct it before it begins. I have a feeling that's not going to sit well with some people. Oh, I know it won't, because I've said it often, and it often does not. That's just my own personal feeling about it, because there's no way I would want to have put my, my wife and my children through this. You know, I exploded the family narrative. And when one person in a family transitions, everybody transitions. They didn't choose to. It wasn't their choice. It was my choice, and they were forced along for the ride. This line, though, the best solution would be to discover what makes a person transgender and correct it before it begins. You know, it's almost subtly 
like eugenics or something. Um, well, that's a that's an interesting insight. I never thought of it that way. I think I came to that because we know at this point that the causes of gender dysphoria, which is what it's called in the DSM-5, are... The pre- Diagnostic and Statistical right. Manual, which sort of uh, the Bible, for lack of a better right. term, for psychology and psychiatry. Yeah. yeah, it used to be called gender identity disorder, and thank goodness they've changed it to gender dysphoria. But we pretty much know that whatever happens has happened in the brain in the second trimester. The gender is formed at the end of the first trimester. The brain forms its attachments to that particular gender at the beginning of the third trimester. And something happens in that second trimester that causes those of us who are transgender to have a brain that does not ever make an appropriate connection to the body that's already been created. So do you see that in yourself as, for lack of a better term, once again, a birth defect? Like, I'm trying to understand your view of it. I would consider it to be one among the many, many different changes in course that the body takes in the process of its development. You know, when you look at how we're made as beings and how the egg and the sperm unite and all of the really almost random things that happen in that process, well, of course, there are going to be all kinds of things that don't come out the way they usually do. And this is one that I think creates issues long-term and ongoing for those who are affected by it. And yes, I would dare say my own feeling is afflicted by it. We're going to take audience questions. I have one more question for you myself before we do. I'm gay. I've given a lot of thought to why God or spirit or the flying spaghetti monster, whatever you want to call a higher power. uh, I've given a lot of thought to why God makes gay people. I, I think we bring all sorts of gifts and are supposed to work through all sorts of challenges while we're on earth. Have you given similar thought to why God made you? Oh, I do remember times screaming at God, who the blank do you think you are, to have made me this way. But honestly, my theology probably has always been, God actually wasn't all that involved. That it just worked out this way. I don't think God is back behind a curtain pulling all the levers. I I see God as the being that burst on the scene 14 billion years ago and all of God's complexity, mystery, ever-expansiveness rooted in relationship. You know, I mean, I just define the Big Bang. So I guess I don't see this personal God that says, oh, I'm going to give you something really difficult to deal with because it'll make you a person of higher character. Yeah, no, God wouldn't do that. It's up to me to decide whether being transgender is going to cause me to be a person of greater character or not. That ends up being the choice I have to make. It's the choice you had to make in recognizing that you were gay. How are we going to deal with this? We are in a minority. And I think dealing with it with integrity is what matters most. I'll underscore, and you say this several times in the book, this is your experience as a transgender person. And if you've spoken to someone who is transgender, you have heard exactly one transgender person's experience. I've not heard any other transgender person ever use the term 
afflicted. And I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've ever used it. So I've got to think about that myself. I mean, that might even be something I have to take back to my therapist. You know, it's like, oh, that was a pretty strong term. Yeah. Well, why don't we begin to take some audience questions? Hi, I'm Elliot Bowders. I live in Denver. And my question is, does life get better? Yes, it gets better. It absolutely gets better, particularly in this day and age. Because we're in a day and age now in which it's becoming much more acceptable to present as gender non-binary or as trans. And the world is becoming so much more accepting of us, much different than it was back in the day. Plus, it's wonderful just being who you are. My previous life had been a life of accommodation. And a life of accommodation might serve the needs of others, but it doesn't serve your soul. So, yes, serving your soul is always a good thing. As I always say, the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. I love that question. Elliot, why do you ask that question? What prompted you to ask that? Um, Well... I'm actually going through my own transition. I'm a transgender male, and um, it's really hard for me, and I need some reassurance. What's been hard about it? Just waking up every morning in the wrong body is really hard. It's really hard, and I do everything I can, but I'm only 12, and there's only so much I can do right now. Paula, does that experience, does that story resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. It so much does. And if you can take a look at the long picture, if you can think of where you might be six years from now or five years from now, that part, I can tell you, is so much better than this in-between period. The in-between period is hard. When I was reading my book and I was reading the chapters about the in-between period, I kept just having to stop and sob. And my engineer would say, it's okay, we can go back and pick this up later. You need to feel what you need to feel. And for me, that that's eight years ago. So oh, this, this was when you is, were reading the audio This is when I was reading the audiobook just this past April. So it really is hard in the space you're in right now. It's actually, I think, the hardest time. And it's going to get much, much better soon. Elliot, one more question. Uh, Paula Williams used the term afflicted. How did that make you feel? Um, it kind of touched me a little bit. In a good way or bad way? Both. Huh. <laughs> Our Turn the Page special continues in the next half hour. Another reader asks if Paula Stone Williams is more concerned about her personal safety since transitioning. Plus, what Williams' transition has meant for her now former wife. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Black and brown people are still getting arrested. On Something. 
on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome back to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For Turn the Page, we choose a book to read together. Then we invite listeners to meet the author. Today, you're hearing our conversation with the Reverend Paula Stone-Williams of Lyons. Her new book is As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. Williams is co-pastor of Left Hand Church in Longmont and a popular TED speaker. Susan Adams in Lakewood asks, As a trans woman, do you find yourself being more vulnerable? regarding your safety. As women, I feel we generally have to be more aware of our surroundings, especially when alone and in public, than men do. My former wife and my best friend both are constantly saying, you can't do that. You've got to lock the door. You can't walk through the parking lot alone. Yeah, I still don't tend to be aware of my vulnerabilities in the way that they certainly want me to be. Is that another indication to you of the privilege that you had as a white male before your transition? Oh, most certainly, yes. You know, a man, particularly a white man, controls whatever space he happens to be in. He walks into a meeting. He doesn't have to give up a part of himself when he goes into the meeting. The meeting was created for him. Every woman, every person of color, every person from a different nation or ethnicity, they all have to give up a part of themselves before they come through the door. I never knew that. I know it now. Back to your former wife, Kathy. You write, there is so much that was unfair to Kathy. It's hard to make peace with it all. Will you expound on that for us? I knew that I was transgender. And... In that naivete of living in the evangelical bubble, I was really quite convinced that marriage and intercourse, frankly, intimacy, was going to cure me. And when it didn't, I thought, oh, no. In fact, it's a rather telling moment at the very beginning of the book. The morning after we were married, when we first had intimacy, I'm staring at the ceiling, and I actually said out loud in a whisper, oh, God, I'm in the wrong body. And I knew that moment I had to tell her and told her not long after that. But, you know, that wasn't okay. I really needed to have told her long before we married. Were you happy to have married her? Oh, yes. I think she brought wonderful, wonderful realities into my life. And we loved being parents together. And I think, you know, looking at our children... Yeah, I think we did pretty well with that whole parenting thing. I loved being a dad, and she was an amazing mom, and we're still close. But I hate that I did that to her. I remember our very last day of marriage therapy with a wonderful marriage therapist who's now retired in in, uh, the south side of Denver. We were his last clients on his last day, and we're both therapists. So I just asked him, I, I said, Mike, how many couples are willing to work this hard? He did not hesitate. He said 1%. And I said, how many couples get this far? And he, again, didn't hesitate. He said 1%. And then he said, which is what makes this so tragic, because you're a lesbian and she's not. And we drove all the way home from Centennial to Lyons in dead silence, because I think that's the day we knew, oh, no. It's just as important for Kathy to be true to herself as it is for me to be true to myself. 
And I think that's the day we knew the marriage was over. Because you had worked for many, many years together on integrating your truth into the marriage. If I could just explore that label you applied to yourself, lesbian, did you embrace that immediately? You know, I don't think so. I think it probably took me a year to embrace that label. To understand yourself as a woman Mm -hmm. who remained attracted to women. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. Stephanie Shader in Superior, Colorado asks, if there was one piece of advice you could give cisgendered folks in how they relate to you, what would it be? Treat the fact that I'm transgender as incidental. That's what most of us who are trans or non-binary want more than anything else is for our gender identity to be incidental. And yet it's the whole subject of this conversation, so I'm feeling a little self-conscious about it. Um, Well, I get that. And I think the other thing most of us feel is, you know, it's fine for you to make mistakes, too. We're all learning how to do this. And also, there are pretty much for me and... A lot of my trans friends, you can ask whatever question you want to ask. We'll let you know if the question's not appropriate. You don't have to figure that out ahead of time. And we'll even let you know why, if it's not appropriate that it is. So just feeling comfortable with us, I think that's what we're looking for more than anything else. A point of comfort at which it fades to the background and it's not always front and center. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah, I was invited into a conversation with showrunners and screenplay writers in Hollywood two months ago. And they had, I think, about 10 of us who were trans and about 50 showrunners or writers. And it was interesting because all 10 of us kept saying that over and over again. Sure, the audience should know that we're transgender, but don't let that be the heart of the story. And I think that also maybe is the essence of my book. I'm hoping that it's also true of the television series that's going to be created out of my life. Oh, is that a done deal? That's a done deal, yeah. I had already signed a life rights deal for a movie, and the movie script had already been written, and everybody was happy with the screenplay. I hadn't seen it yet. But then all the producers read the book, and they said, oh, no, 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 we, we don't want to do a single independent film. We want to do a seven to ten part limited series that can go to Netflix or Amazon Prime. And so they came back to me and I'm actually going to be serving as one of the producers on that. Our first meeting is next week. I imagine it's premature to know who's playing you. It will be someone who's transgender, that's for sure. Because Hollywood has learned its lesson on that subject. Do you think your move to Colorado, which was well before your transition, was a way of trying to escape yourself. I, I've heard this termed pulling a geographic. Oh, I love that phrase, because, yep, we were renting a house in Firestone. And I remember Kathy was up in the loft, and she looked downstairs, and she saw how depressed I was. And she said, I did not know we moved to Colorado to get divorced. And it was devastating to me. I went out into the backyard and just started weeping and looked out to the mountains and thought, please, please, mountains, somehow, God, something, somebody help me because I didn't come here to ruin my family's life. I came here 
because it was a new start. It was a place of hope. What I did not know at the time was that the people of Colorado were actually going to give me the courage to be true to who I am. Who would have known that the front range of Colorado would be that place? I have goosebumps at the thought of it. I'm not leaving. I love it here. I love the way I am treated here. You write about your complicated relationship with your mother. Just a quote here. A lot of cultural realities conspire to prohibit an intelligent and engaging woman from living the life she might have chosen for herself. Paula Williams, I wonder how the insights you've gained after your transition transformed your understanding of your own mom as a fellow woman in the world. My father passed away in May of 2020 during the middle of COVID. He was 96, and we didn't were not able to have a funeral, or I was not able even, even to go to Kentucky to the graveside service. So I went back two weeks ago. On the spur of the moment, I just decided one day to fly out the next, and you can't get a rental car anywhere in America right now, so I finally found one in Louisville and drove two and a half hours back to eastern Kentucky. Got to the grave, and somehow when they had dug the graves, they had moved the footstones. And my father's says, minister, ordained 1946. My mother's says, teacher. It took everything in me to find the strength to move those stones. They were granite. They were 18 inches long, 12 inches wide, 4 inches deep. I I had to get them back in their proper place. So I stood them up on end and walked them back and dropped them. And when I put moms back in place, I just started weeping so hard because all she wanted to do was sore outside the home. Being a housewife for her was a sentence, and she was not able to do that until she was 55 years old. That's when she began her career. And I have a lot of her personality. She was a very strong woman, and I'm a strong woman. And I wish... I wish so many times I could go back and say, oh, mom, I, I wish it could be different. You know, I have this view of the afterlife that's kind of, I suppose, a little bit uh, Roman Catholic, this perspective of a sense of a purgatory kind of a place that's really a wonderful, wonderful resort somewhere in the mountains where you get to work through all the things that you need to work through before you go on to heaven. And that maybe you didn't finish on earth? Exactly. Because, you know, you're going to have to work through that stuff sometime. And I just imagine her finally getting the help she needed to deal with the incredible wounding that came to her early in life, which did not make her an easy person to deal with but also all the cultural forces that stopped her from being who I am now able to be. Erin in Lakewood asks, what advice do you have for women as they try to pull the wool of patriarchy's privilege from men's eyes? 
you're going to have to be persistent. (laughs) They're not going to get it the first time, the second time, the third time, or the fourth time. It's going to take a while. I always say to women, the three things that I wish women would do for themselves is empower one another, learn to say, I've got this, and own what they know. Because women apologize for themselves all the time. And unfortunately, we teach our daughters to be perfect. We teach our sons to be confident. And so that works fine for our daughters when they're in school, but they get into a job. A position opens. It has five requirements. A woman has four of the five. And she says, well, I can't apply. I don't have the fifth. A guy's got two of the five. And he says, oh, I got this. He applies. He gets the job, even though he's half as qualified as she is got to stop teaching our daughters to be perfect and teach them instead to be persistent. And I think persistence is what's called for here. I always wish that I could go back and tell Paul three things more than anything else. No. I wish I could tell Paul the importance of learning deference. Deference is not a respected male trait. We see it as weakness. And I wish I could tell him, this is how you start. You start by being an ally of women, by saying, I'm going to promote you, I'm with you, I'm here behind you, but that's still not deference. Deference doesn't happen until you move from being an ally to an apprentice, until you're willing to say to the women, what do you need me to do? What can I do that will help you the most? I wish I'd learned deference. I wish I'd learned the value of compromise and collaboration and being open to correction, which too often the male ego can't handle. And I wish the other thing, I wish I had learned to truly, deeply listen. Men listen until they think they know what it is you're asking that they have the answer for. I was talking to my former executive assistant. It was wonderful. We were talking not long ago, and I said, so did I listen well? And she said, well, you were a good boss for women, but you would often give just brilliant answers to questions we were not asking. And, you know, I think about it. Now, even as a therapist, I'm a person-centered therapist. I don't have any answers. My client has the answers. My job is to help them remove the obstacles from finding their own answers. I'm better at that now than I was when I was a guy. I just need a moment. Thank you for that insight. Thank you. Not all the guys are the good guys, Ryan. They don't all take it in. I think that hearing it, makes one's shortcomings so real. I mean, the, the, the brilliance, of course, of epiphanies is that you um, see the way you wish you could have been. Yeah. And that's the pain of learning. It's also the joy of learning. So thank you. Paula Williams' music infuses this autobiography just as it has infused your life. Early in your religious career, you toured with a musical group, which released five albums. I'd like to play a track you mentioned. It's not one of yours. Uh, Let's listen to a snippet, and then I want you to share what you feel when you hear it. We've only just begun to live. 
promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way The Carpenters, we've only just begun. This is a song that you make mention of in the book. What does it bring up for you? I remember the first time I ever heard it. I was a disc jockey at a commercial radio station in eastern Kentucky. I got that job at 16 because doesn't everybody get a job as a DJ at 16 in 1967? You know, obviously only boys did and only particular boys from a particular side of town. But I heard it and her voice... Oh my goodness, one of the finest alto voices in popular music that has ever existed. And yet, she dealt with so many of the issues that all women deal with. Not being empowered and trying to find a way to empower herself that ultimately brought about her much, much, much too early death. I had so much respect for her and still do the song itself I was working at the radio station in the summer I, I was I was mowing the cemetery my parents are now buried in during the daytime to pay my way through college and I was doing a night shift of uh, MOR music middle of the road music from 9 to 1am and I was listening to that song one night when we were preparing to marry and the white lace and promises. I wanted the white lace to be mine. That was part of that identity longing. Ryan, I wanted the white lace to be mine. You know, the song was over. It was records back then and needles on the records, you know, vinyl. I just let the needle run around on the vinyl a time or two. If you're of a certain age, you know what that sounds like. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Before I could open the mic to do the news, I was avoiding the reality I did not want to know. And music reaches to a deeper part of yourself than your cognitive self. I mean, I felt like I saw you exhibiting that as we listened to this song because you had tears flowing and it was an immediate transporting. I don't think it took two seconds. And it's hard to keep going. I went, I haven't listened to that song in a long time. And it hit me on both counts, both for how I felt that day about white lace and promises and for the tragedy of her beautiful life. I mean, she had a beautiful life, but of the tragedy of what happens when we don't empower women. Hmm. Back to the music for a moment. Do you still sing, one? And two, do you like your singing voice now that you've transitioned? No one has asked me that question, and I've done a lot of interviews since this book came out. Um, oh, this is the question. Because... As difficult as it is for people who knew Paul to meet Paula, it's difficult for people who know Paula to meet Paul. 
aspects of Paul that still dwell and in you. And when I sing, I sing in the voice of Paul. And I've always heard harmonies. And so we have a wonderful worship pastor, Heather Lynn, at our church. And, and we have some wonderful musicians who sing with her. And occasionally, I'll just throw in the third part because I just have to. But I find it's better to do that with a head mic on from the front row than it is from up front. And certainly, I don't sing solos because it's a man's voice and the disconnect. You can see it in people's eyes, and no one wants it to be that way. You know, this is, I mean, our church is LGBTQ affirming. These are wonderful people, but I see the disconnect. It's hard for them because they know me as a woman, and the voice is the voice of a man. And it is a terrible loss to me. I love how rapidly the world is moving in, in the direction of being able to embrace the gender non-binary. Because I think my grandkids, they don't really have any trouble when I sing to them. I miss it. I miss singing with the rich uh, in a male quartet lead voice that I have. It'd be a second tenor voice. I miss it. And yeah, when I'm alone, oh yeah, I, I let it roar. Is it a voice you're comfortable sharing with us or not? I don't think so. Hmm. But the pain for you is in the disconnect. The pain is in seeing the disconnect in the faces of others. You know, I'm speaking at my church this Sunday. I'm talking about how when I was a child, I would just tell my father on a Sunday afternoon, I'm going to sing tonight. And my father played the piano. And I would always sing a patriotic song. And in our evangelical church, no one saw that as out of place. But I would sing... Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. It's hard to do this. For amber waves of green. For purple mountains' majesties. Above the fruited plain. Oh, God. I want to belt it out, and I can't quite do that. Mm. I hope Kathy Bates will forgive me for taking the words she wrote on Pikes Peak. America the Beautiful um, was inspired by her time. Her time, yeah. Above Colorado Springs. Can I share a thought that occurred to me as you were singing? Sure. That is Paula. It's very interesting to me that you say that voice is Paul, is other, is different, is something that came before. My my thought was, well, isn't that just the fuller sense of Paula singing? Well, I did not sing it from my chest. Mm. I, I sang it from my throat and head, which is not so much a, a male voice. Um, you know, I, occasionally I will, um, particularly for kids, 
I will go into my old radio voice, which was a 1960s Casey Kasem kind of voice, oh. <laughs> which is more from the chest. And I don't know why I always do the, the sign-off from our radio station. At this time, your good neighbor of the air, WGOHAM and FM in Grayson, Kentucky, concludes another day of broadcasting activities. You know, that's from the chest. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. I, I'm grateful for it. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for um, drawing out parts of me that don't usually get drawn out. I needed that. Reverend Paula Stone Williams is the author of As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. She's co-pastor of Left Hand Church in Longmont. Williams joined us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Read with us again in September. The book's not out yet, but I can tell you it's the new thriller from best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. More to come. Special thanks to Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, and Aaron Joy Swank. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.